Sure, me gora. That's my really crappy Irish accent. <laughs> As I wish you a happy St. Patrick's Day on March 17th, coming to you from Sacramento. Um, today's been a hard day. I don't, I don't know what I expected when I realized we're all going to just have to kind of shelter in place. If I were home, for sure there's a rule. Sacramento doesn't have that rule yet. But I expect we're not far away. And I'm just realizing that I'm, this is not going to be as easy as I thought. So today for the pod, I thought I'd take us back in time. And it's interesting because it is 40 years this month, 40 years since dad and Charlene were murdered. Um, The 17th was a big day. That's when the news started to break. Um, And, and this, and what I have today are a few stories that will essentially it's going to surprise you, but I'm going to read just a couple stories that are going to take us all the way to September, and then I'll jump on another in the news section in a, in a couple days or um, in the coming weeks. But I, I thought it'd be interesting to at least catch up with what was going on back then, just days after the news broke. So this article is from March 19th, 1980. And what the reason I do this is that it's fascinating to me to go back in time like this, have these articles in my big murder book, and to be able to see what this press was saying then based on what we know now. I mean, of course, back then, like I said, it's a, it's a, it was a huge murder in a small town. And now here we are 40 years later, knowing we have a serial killer, knowing this guy had an MO, knowing what a complete filthy piece of crap he was. Um, so I think it's it's an interesting look at how journalism captures what they can, but everybody seemed to be holding back information. So I will read a few of these articles and um, comment as I as I can, and where I know we've got to change. This first one is called "The Smiths Were Slain as They Slept." It was written by Greg Zoroya and Skip Rimmer. Greg was doing a lot of the reporting then, of course. This is not true. We already know the headline is wrong. They weren't slain as they slept, but this is the headline that came out. And I have to say, I guess in uh, with 2020 hindsight, it's interesting because if I'd known more about what happened to them then, I think I would have been way more messed up about it. Absolutely, since I've learned this guy's MO and I learned more and more about what happened, thank God I was already 38 years old and I'd lived some life and had some way to understand these things. But if I had been 18 and understood what they went through, I think it really would have messed up, would have messed with my brain. Uh, As it was, I went through this bizarre bizarre PTSD at UC Davis uh, almost a, a year, almost a year after they were killed. I was thinking it was the spring quarter at UC Davis in 1981 when I had what now I know was PTSD. Then it was just me being crazy, but I went through, I had a really rough quarter. And so I I guess there is some benefit to, to not knowing the real exact truth at the time. So here we go. Smiths were slain as they slept. Lyman R. Smith, 43, and his wife, Charlene, 33 of Ventura, were evidently attacked while they slept, killed quickly in their beds, and then tied up, according to the information from police investigators and other sources. There we go. We already know that's not true. They weren't killed first and then tied up. That's just nuts. Anyway, here we go. Sources close to the case quoted police as saying the violent deaths of the prominent attorney and his attractive wife were no were so sudden that they didn't know what hit them. There you go. That's the gift right there. That's what we lived 20 years thinking, <clears throat> that they were killed so suddenly that they didn't know what hit them. 
Venture Police Captain Paul Lydic said a fire log found in the bedroom appears to have been the murder weapon. The log was reportedly found on the bed. 12-year-old Gary Smith found his father and stepmother dead Sunday in the bedroom of their Ventura hillside home. The victims had retired for the night, Lydic said, and died as a result of a single blood force injury to the head of each of them. Okay, again, I don't believe that's true that it was a single blunt force, um, but I need to find my copy of the autopsy report. And then and also soon we'll have Dr. Speth. He, I believe he's going to be one of the first witnesses in the preliminary hearing. That's going to be, <laughs> I'll just keep going with this theoretical May thing as if that's going to happen. But I believe Dr. Speth is one of the first witnesses they're going to have on because of his age and also because of the value of his testimony. And he will say more about really what happened, but um, this is how we understood it as, as I understood it as a kid. I mean, I wasn't a kid by one month, but this is how I understood it. He goes on. The captain said he wouldn't characterize the slayings as execution style. Other sources close to the case supported that by quoting officers as saying, though the couple were tied up when found, they had, they had been bound after they died. Okay, that was a heavy sigh. It's too early to tell if it's a random act of violence, Lydic said. But, he said, homicide is very rarely a random act. So now already you're seeing this pivot where they're saying it's ran rarely random. Of course it is. That's why my mind was blown 20 years later when I found out it was a serial killer. Ending a three-day silence in which little or no information about the investigation was re released, Lydic said... There's a lot of rumors going around from sources that are inaccurate, and that generates a lot of problems. He said both bodies were bound and covered with bed sheets. It was actually a comforter, but okay. Neither of the victims appeared to be sexually molested, and their bodies were not mutilated. Okay, again, what the hell? We know Charlene was raped, but okay, Paul. Uh, there was no evidence found of any forced entry to the residence or any indication of a robbery or burglary. Again? crap. I don't know for sure, but I thought he came in through the bathroom window. That should have been there and that should have been brought up. But I, I also know that he doesn't want to tell a lot of this information to the, the paper. So there's that. Smith and his wife were believed to have been killed sometime Thursday night or Friday morning. Okay, there you go, guys. There's another thing about what day did they die. It has always been up, thrown up in the air. I thought it was Friday night. Now this article says Thursday night. So why don't we know? I don't know why we don't know. Okay. Um, hang on a second. Let's see. Wait, it looks like I'm missing a sentence. Um, just not knowing is dreadful, said one, said a close family, a close friend of the family who asked not to be named. You have this overwhelming feeling that somebody ought to be in jail and you wonder how close the police are to an arrest. Emotional shockwaves have yet to dis dissipate that were generated by the news of the killings. Many of those contacted re reflected on the fact that Smith was the leading candidate for appointment by the governor to one of two vacancies on the Superior Court. A partner in Romney Stone's Smith & Drescher Law Firm, headquartered in Santa Paula, Smith was also a prominent figure in the county's Democratic Party leadership, and it was involved in a wide range of civic affairs. That's absolutely true. Little has been said, however, about his wife, whom friends have described as a bubbly and popular person. She was a fantastic person. There wasn't anybody who didn't fall in love with Charlene immediately, said a longtime friend, Claire Lewis, wife of Superior Court Judge Marvin Lewis. The Lewises have lived near the Smith home in the Clearport area. Just by the way, the Lewises were the ones who saw my brother Gary 
out in front of the house crying and stopped and stayed with him. Um, they've always been really great people, but Judge Lewis, um, Claire was also, I believe, his secretary that he married. So just saying that was kind of a thing. But they were lovely, lovely people. Okay, Claire goes on. She could walk into a room and everyone would know she was there because of her presence and her personality, said Mrs. Lewis. One person who has suffered a particularly severe loss is Mrs. Smith's only listed next of kin, Jill Morrell, Jill Karen Morrell of Thousand Oaks. We were like sisters to one another in the last 20 years and our names were synonymous, said Ms. Morrell. No one thought of me without thinking of her and no one thought of her without thinking of me. Oh my God, do I have some stories, but I digress. The Smiths, both in second marriages, had no children together, and Ms. Morell said that Charlene Smith had an incredible fondness and deepest love for her two children. They were the children she never had. Tiffany Ann, who was nine and a half, and Brett Adam, four and a half, by the way. Um, Jill Karen always had to call all of her family members, Don Lloyd, Tiffany Ann, and Brett Adam, both names, because that was like a thing in 1980, but okay, I sound kind of catty. Um, let's see. They were just like Lyman and Charlene's own kids. And actually, those, kid, the, those kids were really actually sweet kids because um, I, I spent time with them, too, and they were nice kids. Born Charlene Herzenberg on April 17, 1946, the future Mrs. Lyman Smith was a Ventura County native. She was an only child. Her parents died when she was an infant. That is not true. So she was raised by her grandma, Gladys Herzenberg. Her parents did not both die when she was an infant, but... Um, I actually hope that I'll do an interview with uh, Charlene's cousin who has provided so much insight into Char Charlene's childhood. There's really not a lot of information about that, but her cousin, who I've talked with frequently now since the arrest, is awesome and has given me such a more complete picture of probably the why the woman I met was the way she was. So hopefully I'll do that. Um, she's a great person and I think she'll be up for it. Uh, Mrs. Smith grew up in, Charlene grew up in Camarillo, attending elementary schools and graduating from Adolfo Camarillo High School with a major in business in 1964. After one year at Ventura College, she went to work as a legal secretary for the Camarillo law firm of Taylor, Stone, and Storch. In the next several years, she would work as a legal secretary for at least three firms, working finally at Smith's firm in Santa Paula in 1967. That's why I met her when I was five. She was married in late 1969 to Mike Doyle, a young automobile club employee who later entered the Sheriff's Academy and became a deputy. That marriage ended in May of 1972. She and Smith were married in 1975. Mrs. Smith left employment with Smith's firm to work at the municipal court offices in Camarillo, Oxnard, and Simi Valley. She quit that job in August of 1979. So just so I know there's lots of stories about Charlene and um, somebody today posted something just vile on Reddit about Charlene, but the reality is she just worked as a legal secretary a lot. The other thing she was trying to get into, she had a really strong creative side and she desperately wanted to find a way to make money using that creativity, but she wasn't there yet. Um, she just hadn't gotten there yet, but she loved like, she like, here's an example. At Christmas time, she would decorate her Christmas packages. They would be gorgeous. She bought extremely expensive gift wrap and a bow maker, which I finally unloaded, I think just a year ago. This damn bow maker I had for years. I really wanted to get it to a store or a nonprofit or something. Finally got rid of it. But she would, she just had a really nice creative flair and was trying to figure out a way to use that to make, to as a career, but she just wasn't there yet. So I get kind of frustrated because people always 
characterize her as having all these other jobs, but that's not really it. As late as 1979, she was working um, with um, the municipal courts there. Okay, let's keep going. During the remaining five months of her life, Miss Smith was self-employed, and for a time she ran the gold cellar, a gold business in which she sold gold jewelry. Most recently, she looked forward to decorating the interior of some condominiums her husband had helped finance. Mrs. Smith's grandmother, her only known surviving relative, died in 1977. So there you go. Um, That's it. She sold gold. The thing is, I don't even know that she sold that much, but... um, I know for a while I had some of it, and then all the stuff I had got stolen when I moved to Santa Cruz. I was really sad because that was some of the stuff I did have from 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 her from way back when. Okay, so that's March 19th. That is the story that's running as a companion piece to the obituary story, which is the big memorial service. And I've um, shown some pictures of this there uh, that you can... I don't know if it's in the paper, but in the book, what I have is this huge picture. It's a shot of the church. Uh, It does. It looks like a lot of people, and it, it, and yet it's not that big of a church compared to what we have today. But back then, it was a big church. It was held at Saint Paul Episcopal's Church in Santa Paula. They said there were approximately three hundred and fifty people there. I would like to know how many of those are police officers because they absolutely thought for sure the suspect would come to the funeral. I guess that was a thing when you committed a murder back then is to, you know, hang, come hang out at the funeral. So there were a lot of police. What I was dealing with was my grandpa, my dad's um, father, who was torn up. And, and the thing is, is if you knew grandpa, he was like, I call him the human marshmallow. He was the kindest, gentlest person ever. I did not get to spend a lot of time with him. He had married a woman who um, basically did her best to keep us away from him. But my mom was so good and she'd find ways for us to get to drop in on him. We didn't really go with my dad after the divorce very often. We always came up to Sacramento to hang out with my mom's mom, my favorite person on the planet, my grandma. But we didn't get to see grandpa that often. Although um, he lived in Curtis Park. And when we did, the big thing with grandpa is he was the kind of guy, and y'all might have some one of these kind of grandpas. He had a basement full of all the jellies and jams that he had made and canned and all those kind of things. Also, he would show you everything in his garden. I can't stress this enough. Everything very slowly, which is to say it made him adorable. And he, uh, I remember when he first met Katie, because it was first great-grandchild, and he was just smitten. He didn't live much longer after that, but I'm so happy that I have a picture of them together. And so my job at the funeral was I was on point for Grandpa, and Mom was taking care of Gary and Jay. But I needed, and then my dad's brother was there, and he also was really torn up. Um, but he had been in the Navy, and I think he had, he. my Uncle Don tends to be, a little bit removed sometimes from things. He just learned that skill, I think, as a Navy guy. So Grandpa, though, was a mess. And if you get if you get a chance to look at this picture, if you want to know, I'm on the right side in the very front row. And I think you can see frizzy hair sometimes in that picture. And that would be my frizzy hair because I had some damn curly bomb hair. Okay, so here's another article by Greg Zoroya, and this is the day of the funeral. Smith's eulogized 350 attend services for slain couple. Certainly, there is nothing in life that prepares us for violent, senseless deaths. Nothing that is except the resources of the family, the consolation friends, and the solace of religious beliefs at the reverent 
the Reverend Leonard, sorry, why can I not say Leonard? The Reverend Leonard Dixon, retired, told a crowded Santa Paula church Friday. Dixon was speaking before 350 people at the memorial service for Lyman and his wife, Charlene. He had performed the couple's wedding ceremony in 1975. The memorial service was held approximately a week after Mr. and Mrs. Smith were beaten to death while they slept in the bedroom of their Ventura home. Their bodies were not discovered until Sunday. The bodies were cremated before the services. For the survivors, said Dixon, death is never an easy experience, but the sting of such cruelty as this fills us with different emotions, it fills us with loneliness, sorrow, anger. Judges, state and local government officials, attorneys, and a host of other friends and acquaintances filled the chapel of St. Paul's Episcopal Church. All of the pews were filled and people sat in the choir seats, the aisle and the balcony, and stood at the back and in the foyer. Well, okay, that's, I gotta say, uh, you can't have this perspective from the photograph, and honest to God, I didn't turn around and look because I was really focused forward. I have to also share this little bit, is that we didn't go to church. That was not our deal. I had already started going to the Jewish temple, and I was learning there at the temple, but that, again, was like my personal journey. So it was really, really weird for our family to be in this. I mean, me and Jay and Gary and my mom to be in a church doing this church thing. My dad and Charlene, uh uh-uh, that was not their jam. So this was, um, to me, this was a societal convention that we had to do because that's what one does. But it did feel really weird to be there doing this. We are much more of a spiritual family and don't, we, we just don't particularly follow a church. So the fact that it was at this church, I think really was because I guess this guy married dad and Charlene. I don't remember there being a pastor at their wedding either, but that was a surprise wedding. So a lot of that memory is really crazy for me because I was still in panic mode when they were getting married. I, I didn't, it just becomes kind of noisy as I remember how freaked out I was that they were getting married and they didn't tell us till we got there. So this was the guy who married them, um, probably an old friend of my dad's. Anyway, let me get back to the article. It's, here's uh, the reverend speaking. It is a testimony to the abiding nature of their lives that so many have gathered for the service of love and memorial, Dixon said. Six Ventura police investigators and a sergeant continued to investigate the slayings. Both Smiths were killed by a single blow to the head. Police believe the weapon might have been a log which was found lying on their bed. I just want to say one more thing about this log because I think a lot of people think it's like a log like from a, a, like a tree with bark and everything. <laughs> okay, the tree that it came from did have bark, but this was a log that was from a fruit tree, like a um, citrus tree. So citrus tree logs are almost like a baseball bat. They don't have chunks of bark that come off if you hit them like you think of, um, I know, an oak tree or something. This is not like that. This is smooth, smooth wood, and it's really dense and typically pretty, um, pretty moist. But it, it has a different feel, a citrus, a cut up citrus tree. So I believe my dad got this wood from a friend somewhere in the county because we're a big, uh, Ventura is a big citrus county. So just when you think of a log, think more like a bat than a than an awkward fire log. Um, I think that's important as you're visualizing this because, yes, it's so important that you visualize this properly. Uh, okay. Okay, let me go back to the story. The case has a variety of bizarre twists. There was no forced entry into the house, although it is believed the two were attacked after they went to bed, and evidence shows their hands were bound after they were killed. I will make no 
I, I will make no attempt to explain why they were taken so brutally from us, Dixon continued. He eulogized Smith, who had been a leading candidate for a Superior Court v- vacancy at the time of his death, as part of a family circle, as a counselor, friend, benefactor, pol- particularly to the youth, and as a co-worker in many walks of life. Uh, my dad was huge at Rotary, and he also worked for the Boys Club. And so, um, particular of youth, he wasn't particularly into us as his kids, but he really did do a lot for the local youth. And so, I would say that's accurate. Of Smith's 33-year-old wife, Charlene, Dixon said she was always active, interested, energetic, and creative. They were not church-going people, said Dixon. Boom, didn't I tell you? But that is not to say they weren't religious. Um, well, it is to say they weren't religious, but okay. He said their personal yearning was for the eternal values of life, those things that abideth long after other things have withered and decayed. As the service grew to a close, people stood to leave. Those first down the aisle were, were watched solemnly by the hundreds present. They were the family members and closest friends. Among them were Smith's parents and his children. Okay, Smith's parents. Smith didn't have parents. Grandpa... <laughs> My dad had his dad. Okay, I don't know what that, and his children, that's true. True. Most notable was 12-year-old Gary Smith, whose calm young face reflected an endurance and composure far beyond his years. Okay, just, if you mention that to my brother, he'll smack you in the head. He hated that, but okay. Um, Sunday, he was the person who found the bodies of his father and stepmother. Dixon, quoting an English cleric, said, the death of a good person is like putting out of a perfumed candle. The light is extinguished, but the fragrance remains. All right, that's a little schmaltzy. But that's from the funeral. And um, and that takes us, that was March uh, 22nd was the funeral. And this, I'm going to read now these two uh, articles. The next one's in April. So if you can imagine, we've gone along here and it's April and nothing is happening so let me let me take you back to what Greg's been the research Greg's been doing, and this came out Sunday, April thirteenth, nineteen eighty. And essentially, I mean, we were I was chasing them for information. We were trying to get information, but there was not much information to be had. And this article has an interesting picture of the four investigators assigned to crack the Smith case: um, Sergeant Gary Adkinson, investigators John Leach, Russ Hayes, and Dave Stone. And I believe a couple of these guys chased this thing for a long time. So here we go. Uh, but when you think of people being in their homes, oh wait, I'm sorry. This is it. This the search for a slayer challenges four. But when you think of people being in their homes and someone coming in and killing, that was the way when Lynn Marie Muller, 21, was found dead in her home in the summer of 1975. Ventura police investigator Russ Hayes recalled. When they're in their own home, minding their own business, and someone would have to the audacity or the gall or whatever you want to call it to come in and do that, he said. Ms. Muller was found near her, by her husband when he came home from work. Her throat had been slashed. The crime had never been solved. Those are the most offensive murders, Hayes said. Lyman and Charlene Smith were killed that way, in their homes, in their bed. I think when you go home and go to your house, you have the right to your privacy and your safety, Hayes said. Hayes, 39, is among three investigators and a sergeant with the Ventura Police Department assigned to spending all of their time investigating the slayings of Smith and his wife, Charlene. The couple's bodies were found by the Smith's son, Gary, March 17th, in their expensive hillside home. I'm going to say this again. There are expensive homes in Ventura, 
My dad's house was not one of them. The neighborhood called the Ondolando is where the expensive homes were. This was what I would absolutely call a moderate home on par with the homes that I later learned were targeted in Sacramento. Absolutely on par. Three bedroom, two bath home. Okay, here we go with some more big, big adjectives. Because Smith was a prominent Santa Paula attorney, reportedly in line for an appointment as a superior court judge, was wealthy and was active in numerous business activities, the killings have been of interest to many in the community. Many say they consider it one of the most notorious murder cases in recent Ventura history. Okay, we're going to talk later about wealthy. That'll be in the next In the News podcast because not true. Anyway, the police tend to be more reserved. They say the investigation is no different than any other homicide investigation. But the case evokes a variety of emotions and thoughts from the men responsible for trying to solve it. More than anything else, some of them say it is a frustrating case. Captain Paul Leidick last week said that the investigation has provided no suspect, no suspects, and no clear-cut leads. It's like last night. I dreamed about it, said Sergeant Gary Atkinson during a recent interview. Atkinson, 35, is the supervisor of the investigative team. Typically, the same questions linger after each interview, he said. Did he miss anything? How does what he learned correlate with what he already had? On his way home each day, Hayes must drive past High Point Drive where the Smith's home is. I just look up there and start rehashing the whole thing. You think of the crime pictures, you think of the interior of the home, and you just keep rethinking it in your mind, he said. And you think back to the most significant thing people have said. You take that piece of information and you follow it until it comes to an end. He can remember tracing one rumor through seven persons before it petered out. This is fascinating to me because, like I said, we all know how this story ends and it's a serial killer, but it had to be incredibly frustrating for these guys. to. And I know they had a personal stake in this. My dad was their friend. So it had to just be like, I can't imagine how this gnawed at them. Let me go back through this. Okay. Lydic said his investigators have interviewed more than 100 people in the three and a half weeks since the bodies were found. Investigator John Leach said that during the first week of investigation, they worked into the early morning interviewing or dictating information for reports. Dictating, for those of you who are too young to know, is when you talk into a tape recorder and then another human being would type up what you said into the tape recorder. I think of it much more sexist. I suppose it was efficient, but typically men would dictate and the women would type. Okay, Let's see. Thank you. That was my paid announcement for feminism. All right. Um, Leach, 32, the investigator, and investigator Dave Stone, 31, are the newest additions to what is known as the crimes against persons detail. They replaced veteran detective Ida Spellman, who retired er early this year, and Dick Haas, who was recently took an investigator's position in the district attorney's office. Uh, Dick Haas, we worked with a lot too, and he was, he was, is a great guy. I don't know if he's still around, but he was awesome. Stone, who is investigating his first homicide, explained there is no official pressure on the detective to perform. It's really more of an intrigue to solve it. Not so much pressure, he said. He and Leach, the younger members of the team, seem to reflect a restlessness and enthusiasm to make progress. You go and go and go, and yet you're always in square one, one of them said about the case. It's almost like an elimination rather than a progression, said Stone. But all the investigators characterized the Smith case as a challenge to get to their skills. 
getting in people's, the victims' lives like we do is amazing, said Stone, who before this investigation um, primarily worked in auto theft. You really almost relive their lives to an extent, really getting into their background. It's much more challenging than crimes against property. It's an interesting case because it's so complex, and that complexity is reflected in the multitude of interviews the investigators have done. You've got to take these people down pathways on the right dates, and then you've got to pick their brains, said Leach. People are farting. They respond to what you ask them, and a lot of times they don't tell you something because they didn't think it was that important, he said. But because of the notoriety of the Smith case, many times the investigators are bombarded by questions from people who are curious and want to know more. more. Everyone wants to contribute. Oh my God, sorry. (laughs) I can't believe what I'm going to read now. Go ahead, Jen, just read it. No reason to get on your soapbox. Everyone wants to contribute. Wives, wives, neighbors, so-and-so, said Atkinson. Oh my God, wives. All right, straighten up. You have to listen to them. Maybe they just thought of something you didn't think of, the sergeant said. Rumors are something that come out all the time. But, he said, we would rather run down 1,000 false rumors than have someone that is that has that one key not call us. The investigators can be reached at their phone number. Okay, so that that's April 8th. I mean, sorry, that was April 13th. I have another one here that was um, that was similar uh, from Greg Zeroya, who was busy working on this stuff. Police have no suspects. Oh, sorry, Smith murder case. No leads, no suspects, nothing. Police have no suspects, no clear-cut leads, no motives in the case. Three weeks and two days have gone by since young Gary Smith visited his father's Ventura home on a Sunday afternoon to help mow the lawn. I just need to be clear that uh, this every time Gary got mentioned in one of these stories, he just could not stand it. So when I read them even now, 40 years later, I'm like, oh, poor Gary, here it comes again. I think this one's going to um, dig in a little bit here to the kids too, possibly. Here we go. The 12-year-old boy was the first to discover the bodies of his father, prominent attorney lawyer, attorney Lyman R. Smith and stepmother Charlene, who had both been beaten to death in the bedroom of their expensive hillside home. Some of these are just going to be tropes that go on forever. That first week, four police investigators and a sergeant spent nearly 80 hours over seven days trying to crack the case. But since then, investigators have been working closer to an eight-hour-a-day, five-day-a-week work week. One of the detectives, Dick Haas, regarded by many police officials as one of the best detectives, if not the best in the Ventura Police Department, has left for an investigative position with the district attorney's office. It's still not clear whether he will be able to continue to investigate the Smith case from that department. But three investigators and a sergeant remain on the case full time. Detectives in the Smith case have put in more than 200 hours of overtime interviewing more than 100 people. It's kind of complicated crime investigation. I'm sorry. Any kind of a complicated crime investigation can be frustrating. However, we're still optimistic that we'll solve the case, said Paul Leidick. Usually, if you have a clear-cut motive in the case, that will lead to a suspect or suspects. But in the absence of that, it just makes it much more difficult. Police believe the couple died approximately three to four days before they were found when Smith and his wife went to bed Thursday night. Oh, I'm sorry. When Smith and his wife went to bed Thursday night, March 13, they set the alarm for an early hour because Friday, Smith had an... Okay, 
by the way, not the security alarm, the alarm that sat by their bed, the clock alarm, because Friday Smith had an appointment at his law firm at Romney Smith and Drescher in Santa Paula. Sometime during the night, someone got into the house without force, took a log from near the fireplace. Okay, the logs were actually not near the fireplace. They were outside the back of the garage um, where the wood was piled, but okay. This is, again, this is the reporter going with what he was told, right? Took a log from near the fireplace and in the darkness slipped into the bedroom where the couple were sleeping. It took only one blow to the head of each from a large piece of wood to kill Smith and his wife. Okay, this is driving me nuts, but here we go. Nothing was taken from the house. There was no mutilation of bodies and no sexual molestation, but the hands of the victims were bound. According to sources, the autopsy initial indicated initially that the couple's hands were bound after they died. However, it is no longer clear whether the binding occurred before or after death. There is evidence that Smith and his wife probably died instantly. That's not true. Well, I don't know. That's not true either. Um, okay, we'll keep going. Authorities say that in nearly every autopsy of a homicide, the medical examiner coroner searches for one small human organ that can give some indication of the emotional state of the victim at the time of death, the adrenal gland. According to Dr. Peter Speth, assistant county medical examiner coroner, this case was no exception. As a small fleshy gland about the size of its, uh, about the size of a half dollar, when it's healthy, the adrenal gland secretes adrenaline and adrenal cortical hormones into the bloodstream, the fight or flight hormones at times of stress. In that sort of situation, hormones would be secreted in large quantities into the bloodstream, said Dr. Ronald Kornblum, Ventura County Medical Examiner Coroner, explaining the process. Again, guys, this is 1980. These reactions are part of the autonomic nervous system. It happens whether you want it to or not. Presumably, when someone died, has died under stress, the gland has shrunk because it has excreted all of its contents into the bloodstream, said Kornblum. The Smith adrenal glands indicated Smith and his wife were not terrified that they did not suffer, but died instantly, authorities said. Okay, sorry, I'm just going to take a deep breath there because we know that is so not true. Again, probably a gift that I grew up for 20 years believing that was the case. But now, and it's, I think it's one of the reasons I've really had such a hard time since the arrest and since I've learned so much more about this case, to know that they were actually completely freaked the fuck out. They were under tremendous stress. And I know from talking with people who survived the rapes, how traumatized they were by that, by the rapes themselves. And, and we know that I, I think it's, I think we know that my dad was killed first and Charlene second. And they both, um, my dad, knowing Charlene was being raped for hours, um, Charlene knowing my dad had just had his head bludgeoned to death and she would be next. I just, this is, um, this feels like some really archaic science to me. Corn Oh, here we go. I'm sorry. I should have just freaking finished, Jen. Focus, focus. Kornblum stresses that such evidence is not conclusive. The gland is too small and varies too much inside from one person to another for precision. But examining it is helpful, he said. It goes along with your subjective opinion, but would have to remain that suggestive, speculative. So we know to watch for this. If Dr. Smith 
Um, this is Dr. Kornblum, who I suspect probably isn't alive anymore. I don't think they would bring him to the trial in uh, May or to the, I'm sorry, preliminary hearing in May. But Dr. Speth is supposed to be there. He's the guy who was on scene at the house. And just another side story, when D'Angelo was arrested, Dr. Speth called me. I had wanted to thank him for getting the two vials of DNA um, from Charlene when he did and just being smart enough to do that. And he called me and he proceeded to talk to me about stuff that I quite frankly didn't need to know. But he talked about um, how long semen how long semen stays in a non-liquid form in the body until the body basically warms it and it becomes a very liquid form, which, silly me, thinking it was always liquid. There we go. So not really. Um, not if you're an investigator. Anyway, he he knew then. And so I'm so confused about why why this wasn't released and why I was questioned it just really baffles me. I guess I'll never really know the answer and thank God I'm a grown-ass woman now. But um, yeah, really, really confusing. Okay, so this is the last article that I'll read because this is into May now. And this one, this article is kind of a classic because I think I get quoted saying something dumb. But the next bit of news we have isn't until September and October. So I'm going to end with this last one. And this is um, an article about the children of Lyman Smith discuss his killing. That is the headline, children of Lyman Smith discuss his killing by Greg Zeroya, which we got to know. I felt like I knew Greg really well. He was always hanging around. <sighs> Here we go. I want to make sure you have it clear. It seemed important it seemed an important point to 12-year-old Gary Smith speaking earnestly as he sat curled up in the well-worn lap of an easy chair. <laughs> you need to understand. We did not have anything other than well-worn furniture. We, with living with my mom, we didn't have extra money at all. Um, not at all. I don't know how much money my dad had, but he hadn't saved anything for me to go to college. So when they talk about my dad being wealthy, he was doing a lot of his BS investments, but he was pretty leveraged. So when I, living with my mom and my brothers, we did not live the high life at all. We absolutely had the well-worn lap of an easy chair. Okay, he'll go back to the story, Jen. Quit interrupting. Okay, here he goes. Because a lot of people I thought I had, and he hesitated, they got the impression that I saw his face. He didn't see his father's face, Gary said. Late on a Sunday morning in March, the boy walked rather tentatively while an alarm clock buzzed in the background into the bedroom where his father, attorney Lyman Smith, and his wife, Charlene, had been beaten to death and lain undiscovered for two days. All Gary saw first were figures under the bed covers. I picked up the covers a little, a little way, and all I saw was this much of his shoulder, like this. Gary made a slashing motion as if to slice off his left shoulder, and this right here, of his face, the boy said, cupping his hand over the side of his head. Because I didn't pick it up, the cover, I didn't pick it up any further, the boy said, his voice high-pitched. This, Gary said, holding his hands next to his head, was the pillow, just yucca with blood and stuff. His mother, Marge, and brother, J-15, silently sat nearby in the family's Ventura home, as Gary recalled that day. And I could tell it was him by his back. I didn't even look at her. I thought of her and I thought, well, God, I'll have a terrible memories if I look at her, he said. The heads of the two were crushed by the blows of a log that was still between them when Gary walked into the room. Anyone underestimating Gary's intuitiveness would risk patronizing the boy. He has already had some of that. 
Gary, like his brother Jay and sister Jenny, 18, are bright young people, cognizant of the multitude of feelings, compassion, and curiosity that were set into motion after the violent deaths of their father and his wife. In fact, it is a concern over the relaxation of these feelings, a kind of back-to-routine abandonment of the interest in the Lyman Smith case, that prompted Miss Smith to discuss her experiences as a suspect and the other effects the slayings have had on her life. If the slayings are forgotten by the community, Miss Smith said, they, the people, won't be thinking about it, and I think there's somebody who might know something who hadn't thought about it and will hopefully tell the police. She talks quickly, uh, still do, crowding her words and changing the nuance of her speech to reflect changing emotions. In a single breath, Miss Smith can make fun of any given situation or herself or just as easily be serious. I know they, the police, don't have anything, Miss Smith said. Ventura po- Police Captain Paul Lydic would have to agree. Lydic said Friday that his four detectives investigating the case are without any suspects. Okay, you guys, this is May. Without any suspects, though it is two months after the murders. They are still running down leads. For a time, the three investigators and a sergeant spent all of their working hours on the case. Now they spend as much time as they can get between other, more pressing investigations. Lydic agrees that continued publicity may spark some response, but he said, my feeling is that with the publicity that this case has already received, anybody who thinks they have any kind of knowledge would by now have contacted us. Miss Smith clearly remembers when the police contacted her. I was terrified, she said, because I'm 18 now and I thought, this is serious. Always when you're a minor, you think I can still fall back on being a kid, she said. It's just the cir- if the circumstances were perfect, if they got all lined up, I could have been in a lot of trouble. There was no accounting for a time during that part of the evening. Police believe her father and his wife were killed. Okay, just by the way, there freaking was accounting for my time, but my mom wasn't sure if I was still home. I came home, she was in the beanbag chair watching soap. That was a show on television back there then that had... Um, Bert, who would do time travel like this, doop, 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 and she completely spaced and didn't, and this is my mother, I've never let her live this down so I can tell you this story. She just forgot that I was still home. So when the police asked her if I was home, my mom said, I don't know. Yeah, I've used that for 40 years. Just think about that next time you're asked to provide an alibi for somebody, especially your kid. Just do it first and then backtrack. Always provide the alibi first, then backtrack. Okay. There was no accounting for her time during that part of the evening. Police believe her father believed her father and his wife were killed. The first inkling Miss Smith had that investigators had shifted their attention to her was when her friends were questioned. All of a sudden, one night, they were all calling me. Jenny, the police just got here asking questions about you and stuff, she said, mimicking an excited voice. They, the officers, were just asking if I was violent. Well, I talked to five of my friends, and then I said, well, come on. And finally, they came in and said, people have been telling us they really think that you, you know, you didn't like your father. So we'd like to come and take a polygraph test. <sighs> that will be a long podcast when I explain all that to you one day, but not today. Miss Smith describes her relationship with her father as tenuous. Our personalities clashed a lot, but I'm told we're a lot alike, she said. She spent an hour with the polygraph expert. It was different. I wish it hadn't been there for murder. I wish it had been for a job or something. I kind of look at everything pretty lightly, she said with a mischievous grin as she recalled the event. I was angry at them and I thought, okay, if you're going to be like this, so will I. So I went there. I went in there with a kind of smart ass attitude, like I do everything. 
but it's more fun that way. Oh my God, words that you'll have to live with for the rest of your life. Yep, I said that. Moments later, however, she admitted, I was scared. I was really scared. They questioned her as to whether she had ever been violent, had ever hurt anyone, and finally, whether she had killed, and they said a good adjective for what had happened, but I can't remember what it was, her father and Charlene. As she sat in a room with a one-way glass window on the wall, Miss Smith remembers thinking, oh God, this is so dragnet. I had this feeling my mother was there behind the glass, and I just kept looking up at her and winking. When she came out, I said, where were you? And she said, right there looking at you every time. Miss Smith said the detectives decided the 18-year-old was a very determined young lady. She passed the test. President of her student class at Buena High School for two straight years, Miss Smith describes herself as a politician while running for office and a muckraker while working as a reporter for the student newspaper. It's not very readable, but they've got very good writers. That was a quote, whatever. Though currently she's a student at Ventura College, Miss Smith is still a familiar figure on the high school campus. My whole life was there, she explains. I think about it all the time, she said about her father's slaying. I think about it all the time because it always bothered me and I feel I should know something. I think it's turning out too clean. It couldn't have just been an act of just total spur-of-the-moment violence. When Gary or Jay think about who killed their father, a certain figure comes to mind. I think he was just a big guy, said Gary, some guy in dark clothing with a long arm to wield the log. I've dreamt about that, said Jay. How ironic that both my brothers, by the way, had kind of a premonition about D'Angelo. Isn't that creepy? A big guy, I mean, a big guy in a dark, in dark clothing. Ugh. Okay. The 15-year-old junior high school student, that's Jay, said that said when he heard of his father's death, death, I just took off running. He had his jogging suit on, and my mom told me, so I figured to run off what I was feeling. That was the only time I cried. That's Jay. That's Jay. That's my brother Jay. The arrest of his father's murder is not uppermost in Jay's mind. I don't really care if they catch the guys. Just get the hassle over with, with all the people getting the estate settled and through all the courts, he said. The three children are the primary beneficiary in their father's will. Um, actually, that's not true. I was not in my father's will. There you go. There's a scoop right there. Not many people know that. I want to find out who did it and why, said Gary. Did they have a good reason? I mean, there's no reason to do it, but did they have a good reason? And then I think they should be punished for it. But neither he nor his sister thinks whoever is convicted should be executed. We've just never believed in it, said Miss Smith. There you go. There you go. Old timey timey. That's uh, way back there. I just told you a secret. I, not a lot of people know, but yet my dad did not include me in his will. I don't know why. I have some ideas, but I don't know why. Um, Cheryl Temple tore me up on Saturday morning when she sent the notice about the DNA. She had included a sentence that said, I'm not going to cry right now. I promise I'm not. But she said, your dad would be so proud of you. I am proud to know you. And that got me because honestly, I don't actually think he ever was particularly proud of me, but I do think he would be now. And that's one of the reasons I'm doing this. And one of the reasons I am telling their story and advocating for them because they didn't get to have a voice and they were taken. Sorry, guys, <laughs> they were taken in the worst possible way. And I do now feel like he is proud of me. And I do feel like this is what I'm supposed to be doing. And um, I'm really happy that you guys are on this journey with me. Okay, so with that, 
I will stop for tonight and I'll be back with more um, probably on Thursday. Everybody, please stay healthy. Highway